Welcome to the DSO Connect podcast. I'm Casey. I'm Robin. And we have a special guest today that we're going to introduce in just a minute. But before we do that, we just wanted to catch up and check in. Robin, how are you doing? Uh, I'm okay. Today, I, today's a good day. I'm really excited about this interview. And today I will say I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm really hopeful right now. Hopeful is good. Hopeful is good. Yeah. How are you, Casey? I'm good. I'm also good and hopeful and excited. And I, I've got a bit of a, a bit of a break before our fall classes begin. And so I am like gearing up and getting the studio physically ready, which means installing TVs and buying new laptops and cameras and all kinds of fun equipment. But I wanted to revisit our conversation from last week about masks because in our DSO Connect community, we had a really good conversation about that in which um, my dear friend, Ashley Vallow-Horrigan, brought up a great idea that I wanted to share on the podcast and make sure it reaches everyone. So she says, we are doing the comfort bands. It's been great. Everyone knows what each color means and boundaries can be respected. Red means I will be wearing a mask and wish to maintain 10 feet apart from everyone at all times. Yellow means I will not be wearing a mask and wish to maintain six feet apart from everyone most of the time. And green means I will not be wearing a mask. Hands-on corrections are okay. I am okay with partnering with others as long as we are both wearing masks. And so she said that we've got three baskets at the door of the studio. They choose one each time they come in. And as they leave, they put it in the used basket to be cleaned. And I just think that's a great idea. Like how, how, what a wonderful way to communicate that. And I think as long as it's really clearly defined what each color means at your studio, that's a great way to, to facilitate that. Yeah. I do like the idea of giving people a little bit more control over you know, how they're going to interact with people. I think yeah. that it should, there should be a level of personal choice with, within a structure. So, yeah, I do like that. I, I'm actually tossing that around for myself. Thanks, Ashley. Yeah, so that was Ashley Vallahor again, my dear friend and studio owner. She owns Regency Dance Academy in Richmond. Nice. Um, all right, so shall we bring in our special guest? Yes, I'm excited. Okay, so our guest today is Chasta Hamilton, who wrote an amazing book called trash the trophies so welcome chasta thank you all so much for having me this morning i'm excited to be here yeah we're super excited to have you on robin and i both read the whole book it's an amazing read super duper well written before we dive into our conversation i wanted to read your bio Chasta Hamilton is the owner, artistic director of Stage Door Dance Productions and the founder and president of the nonprofit Girls Geared for Greatness. She believes the performing arts can change the world and she's on a mission to make it happen. Recognitions include the Goodman Award for Regional Leadership Excellence in the Area of the Arts 2012, Triangle Business Journal's 40 Under 40 in 2014, Women in Business's Future Star 2016, and the Raleigh No Tribe featuree 2018 and 2019. In 2019, Shasta was recorded for the Oral History Archives for the State of North Carolina as part of the She Changed the World Women Breaking Barriers Project. She received her BA in 2007 as a Park Scholar at North Carolina State University. She currently lives in Raleigh, North Carolina with her husband, John, and their Scottish Terrier, Elvis. I love that your dog is named Elvis. <laughs> 
He's a he's a huge personality. He actually played Toto in a production of The Wizard of Oz. So he just oh he fits God, right I in. Love that. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to get my dog on stage. He's our studio mascot. <laughs> do it, do it. It was an amazing experience for Elvis. So That's he's done so a few cool. commercials too. So Oh my gosh, there. no way. That's awesome. So Chasta, let's start with can you give us the elevator pitch for your book? Yeah, so Trash the Trophies, How to Win Without Losing Your Soul is set to the backdrop of why I extracted my studios from the competitive dance industry. But at the heart of the book, it's about transformative personal and professional leadership and writing things that feel wrong within your life. And especially right now, I feel like those are things that we're all questioning every single day. So I think the message is really um, serendipitously relevant right now. The timing is very kind of eerily strange, um, but it's, it's a universal message. Yeah, I definitely noticed that that thought kept popping in my head as I was reading the book, even though I don't do competitive dance at my studio and I never have. It just was very relevant to this whole thing that we're going through right now mm -hmm. at my studio to wear masks while exercising or to not wear masks while exercising. And what I really kept coming back to through your messaging was you've got to first identify what it is your gut is telling you. And then you've got to really follow what that is because otherwise there's just going to be this uncertainty. You, you can never fully commit to your own vision if you're not, if it's not in alignment with your own gut. Yeah. And I, I love that the book was, first of all, it's really well written and it's an easy read. I mean, I read it in two days and just breezed through it and it was an enjoyable read. So kudos to you for writing a a book that's a that's a joy to read through but throughout it was really it's really a book about leadership i mean it, in the con the specific context is dance studio industry leaving the competition scene behind but really it's about effective leadership and effective communication and i thought that sprinkled through this story were some really amazing tips on on leadership and effective communication part of that is just having the experience of recognizing, hey, I wasn't good. You know, there was there was something that was not working for a period of time. And I think so often in the motivational sphere, we get caught up in like, this is what you should be doing. Um, and so the focus is always forward versus saying like, well, this happened to me and this is what we did to fix it. And it worked. So maybe if we continue to applying this, we're, we're on to something. And I think we learned so much through failure. That's why, you know, this whole concept of, of what is a win, what is success, it's so process um, over product is so important because that's what leads to a really rewarding and happy life. Yeah, yeah. So take us through the timeline. When did you open your studio? So I opened the studio right out of college or I mean about a year out of college. So 2009, mm -hmm. um, which was an what interesting a, time to open a, a business. Time, yeah. What a great time to open a business. Fantastic. Yeah. You know, right in the middle of a recession and, and I just wanted to be good. Like I wanted to be a good studio. And a lot of times I think when we have our secular studios that maybe are, you know, more non-classical, non-conservatory, part of that pressure is let's do dance competitions. Like it is a big market in our industry. So we were just checking the boxes. We didn't really have like a solid brand or identity. And that is what would, that's what I was wrestling with. Like it was so, it conflicted with my vision for what I wanted for my legacy. But it was just so like what you do. So I said, you know, I'm gonna give myself this period of time to watch this. 
and see if I could reinvent something that could be better. So when did you, if you can give us a, a year of a landmark, how far into your studio ownership journey did you start questioning things? Well, I started questioning things um, almost immediately, but <laughs> did, but not, not to the level of, of removing ourselves from it. I really started considering that around 2012, 2013, taking action around 2015, 16. So we're about five years out of that pivot. And you said that you went from 50 dancers in, on your competitive team to 13 in your intensive training program. How, um, what's the status now? How has the program grown and shifted? So what's really exciting, and I, I still have trouble wrapping my mind around it, but I mean, I've, I'm experiencing the chaos that all of us in the dance studio industry are experiencing right now. So yeah. it's been a roller coaster. Like, I feel like I go through those 12 steps of the book almost every day, sometimes different hours of the day. But our intensive training program is actually larger even right now than our competitive program ever was. That's great. That's beautiful. Good for you. So Robin and I come from an interesting perspective where neither of our studios have a competition aspect to it. We, we both, and, and we were just talking about this, it's probably because I grew up at Robin's studio and then opened my own later on. But we both started out with the mission of not, ha not having competition be a part of our programs. So we have always been aware of, of these of these points that you've been making in the book. And I think both of us, while we were reading it, we're like, yes, 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 check, 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 agree, agree, agree <laughs> with all of your points. But hearing about the competition industry from the inside, from your perspective as a student, as a teacher, as a studio owner, and as a competition judge, gave us a really interesting insight. So can you talk a little bit about your journey through the competition world? Yeah. So when I was participating as a student, it was fun. You know, I mean, we would go, we would dance. Honestly, I can't remember any scores. And it would just, you know, we would hang out with our friends, go to restaurants, see cities, and that was exciting. And then when we opened the studio, even as a teacher, when I was just teaching, like in college and would go with studios that I was working with, it would be, you know, it would feel easy. It would feel fun. And then when I became a studio owner, is when it really started to shift because I was noticing that this third party deregulated third, par third party that I had no control over was influencing the valuation of my business. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I talk about like, if the kids are winning, then they're too good to be a part of the studio. If they're losing, we're not training them good enough. And it's like the wins and the losses actually don't really mean anything because there's no consistency or standardization. And that I would see that every weekend as I was judging. So I was having these two perspectives of one, how it was impacting my house, you know, my business and sitting there with all of this conflict, you know, watching people pour their hearts and passions onto the stage and knowing the amount of resources that they're investing into this. And I just kept thinking like there has to be a stronger ROI that is more, um, reflective of the actual professional industry mm -hmm. and you know I feel like the book is an important read for parents too because a lot of parents don't necessarily understand that you can be a part of a very successful studio without the competition piece right right and I think that comes back to the branding and the messaging and that as studio owners part of our job is to educate our clientele about what a dance training experience should or shouldn't be and should or shouldn't include and making sure that we get that out there. 
Yeah, and I think that the parent piece is really important, Chasta, because most parents aren't experts in the dance field, and many of them have never grown up at studios. Some have, but the majority of my clientele did not. And so they just rely on us to tell them what this world is. And, you know, I started my studio in Baltimore and Casey was my student and we did not do any competitions. But when we moved into the, a more suburban area in southern Pennsylvania, I decided that my whole marketing message was going to be, we do not do competition. There was one other studio in the area and they did. And that was going to be our differentiating piece. So it became part of our brand right away. And I think that what, what a lot of the parents ask when they would inquire about our studio is how do they perform? Like what you mentioned hotels and dinners and that performance thing. And, and that's super exciting for the kids, but there are so many ways that we can give them those types of experiences or that type of joy outside of the competition setting. And I think, and you get into that later in the book. Um, and I'm excited to talk about that when we get there. I completely agree, Robin. And that was something that I wasn't really good at early on in the business was approaching the clientele with education and empathy, understanding that they probably have no idea what's happening and that whatever I put a value on, they're going to consider and endorse. So if a comp if we attend a competition, but the competition doesn't operate in the way I would want my brand to operate, they're still going to affiliate that as a piece of me as a business owner. Do you have the book in front of you? I'd love for you to read a passage. I, yeah, I actually do. Okay, so if you wouldn't mind reading page 64. The journey I was about to begin was not going to be short or easy. It had to be an intentional phase of self-discovery. I knew we could merge passionate and purposeful artistic work that resulted in meaningful wins and recognitions as a collective team. The trophy may come in the form of impact or influence, personal growth, transformation, the trophy should not come at the expense of relationships, emotional or physical well-being, basic ethical principles. This thought process requires consistency and intention and communication. Yeah, I thought that was so poignant right there, just that the trophy, the, the win of the experience it is, is not the piece of shiny plastic. And so much of the pursuit of that shiny plastic comes at the cost of these other things that when you think about your studio's values, your mission are really kind of compromising that. It's true. And, you know, I always say when I'm talking about the book that I'm certainly not anti-competition because life business, you know, is, is kind of a competition in itself, but you don't get a trophy every single day for waking up and being a great human. Work ethic, adaptability, resilience, all of those things that dance instills like in its purest form are so important. And I feel like the way the current competitive industry is modeled negates the installation of those values on a consistent and regular basis. Yeah, yeah. And when you give every single dance or every single soloist or every single kid gets a trophy, you're just devaluing that reward. And I thought it was interesting that you, you were talking about the names of the trophies and how it's so convoluted and so confusing. You can't keep track of, of who's actually won. Can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, so the, the names, I'm back when I was participating as a dancer, which is, it was a little more straightforward, gold, silver, bronze. Not every single person got an adjudication. Like a few people got something and everyone else just went home and worked harder and it was okay. 
But like, as the years pass, these names have just become like even more outlandish. Um, you know, we have like crystals and diamonds and double titaniums. And now a high platinum may be the lowest adjudication. Like we're completely off of the gold, silver, bronze platform and have jumped into all this other sphere because, you know, at the heart of it, uh, competitions are businesses and they want clients to continue returning. And I think right now more than ever, we're being very... Um, revenue conscious is dance studios. I mean, I think we have to be to get to the other side of this. So that's, this is a great time for studios to really think about where their dollars are going. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, we're, we're in survival mode. Um, I think most small businesses are, and you know, I would see these invoices going out even when things were great. And I was just like, this is so much money. Mm-hmm. Money that if we shifted this could stay more in house mm-hmm. and would build client loyalty and would just create like a stronger community. Because the one thing that I did love about the experience was community and performing. And like you said, with creativity and innovation, that can be replicated in a variety of ways. Right, right. I love that you broke it down into like dollars per minute of the expense and what you could be doing with that amount of money instead. You know, you talked about a soloist paying $155 for their three minute solo and you can do so much more with that money. And the $155 is not even paying for the journey because the parents are already paying for tuition and rehearsal fees. It's literally just that time on stage. I mean, as an adult, can you imagine showing up somewhere like if we were getting a service and they were like, oh, well, your two minute facial is one hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, I would. (laughs) I would lose my my shit. (laughs) Chasta, do you anticipate a shift in the competition world as a result of maybe not only your book, but so many things it seems are in alignment right now? on our world. There's so much talk about exploitation of children, you know, YPAD is really gaining a lot of traction. Do you anticipate moving forward that there will be a shift in the way competitions are operating? I would like to think so. I feel like there's going to be a force of change to some degree. But I also, you know, I feel like we kind of got to the place that we're currently in because it it is a machine that's been running. So it's going to require leaders to step up and say, okay, the time to change is now for us to do this differently. And I think there is an opportunity for change and it'll, it'll be interesting to see, but you know, just like we're all pivoting and changing, I think they're going to have to as well. Yeah. One yeah, of my I mean, favorite lines in, in the book that actually made me laugh out loud was when you referred to the appropriateness clause, which everyone loves to publish and then proceed to ignore. And I, I guess you are suggesting that, you know, they have rules in the competitions that you need to be moving and costuming and using appropriate music. And then the scores or the awards don't reflect the clause at all. Yeah. Or they'll even say that, you know, if it's inappropriate, it, it will not be allowed to be on stage. But I, there's been a number of times where I've seen questionably appropriate things um, have no repercussions because it's hard it's hard to stand up but I I think that's really important when you're building a brand is that if you're putting in writing you also take the action to stand behind it yeah and you you talk about the the competition world being a business so the competition you know obviously is motivated beyond its own appropriateness clause when 
faced with the decision to, to disqualify a particular number if that studio is bringing them a ton of revenue and you don't want to, you know, burn a bridge with that particular customer. Exactly. So, yeah. Did you see that, Chasta? Did you see that a lot as a judge as well? I did. And even, you know, we had a change as we were kind of going through this rebrand. There was this period of time where like everybody wanted to wear the two piece outfits to dance in. And, you know, because they, they became so trendy for a, a little while, like kind of around the time when Dance Moms started. And I was just like, this is so distracting. It's not good for dress code. And, and we're not doing it. So we said, you know, no more two piece. Everything has a leotard base um, as its requirement for dress code. And there was so much backlash, like, and, you know, I talk about in the book how resistant people are to change. And we're seeing that right now as we're having to implement change every single day um, with safety protocols and operations. And it's, that's why, like, I just think the messaging is so universal because I'm like, you know, as we've kind of gotten into this mask habit, you know, at the studios, it reminds me so much of that, that transition away from the two piece outfits. Mm, interesting. And was that just for in the studio, in class and rehearsals, or did that pertain to on stage costuming as well? Everything. We did, like, just for consistency, we said no, no more two-piece. That's great. So tell us about how you, once you made the decision to step away from competitions as part of your studio experience, how did you break that news to your, to your clientele, and how did it go? So actually talking about this makes me feel sick because it was just, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a big change, right? So we waited until that May. We knew it was coming. And each of the families had a scheduled appointment time. We brought them in. We sat there for like four hours and told each family one-on-one. -on -one. Because when you're doing a change like that, it's a little bit higher level than an email announcement. Um, because these are people that have bought into what you do. And now you're saying, oh, well, everything that you know you're focused on we're not doing anymore and those conversations were hard um but i'm so glad that we did them it, it would have been very easy to just send an email but it gave a little bit of closure and it also gave us the chance to say this is how our narrative is shifting and it gave them the opportunity to process the information and choose whether or not to stay or or move on and you know like you all said a lot of them did choose to move on yeah, and I love that you gave them kind of a, a year-long transition where you would still rehearse solos without the studio endorsement, but that way people could kind of test the waters. I thought that was a really innovative solution. I was really adamant against that, but my assistant director was like, that you actually have to do this. Like, you can't just like completely pull the plug. And in retrospect, it was, it was super smart to do that because it, got, it gave people time to buy in to the new program while still keeping their toe in the old program too. Yeah, yeah so and, you to, able and to, to see that the quality of the training wasn't going to change. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, you talk about five strategies to use when communicating information. Can you read that section in your book? It's on page 134 and 135. Yes. So here are the five strategies. Determine the appropriate medium. In determining the appropriate medium, ask yourself how the information will best be received. Is it an in-person conversation or is it better suited for a written format? What are the risks relating to miscommunication or misperception? Two, practice. Envision and practice every scenario imaginable. I always start with what's the worst that could happen. If 
From there, I practice and strategize every imaginable possibility. For this exercise, let your creativity run wild. Mentally prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Educate. Knowledge is power. Do your back-end research so you can be prepared for questions, suggestions, thoughts, and feedback. Keep your tone even and avoid condescension even if you feel you have been wronged. Blame is not a productive use of energy. Four, listen. The other party will likely want to be heard. If the conversation is being respectfully managed, listen. Even if we do not agree with the counter-arguments or opinions, if we listen, we gain a deeper understanding of the human condition through empathy. This helps us make better decisions and choices in the future. Five, be steadfast. If you are about to go through a pivot or a change, this is not the time to waver on your beliefs or actions. Be strong, confident, and committed. Frame your narrative with hope, excitement, and enthusiasm. To create a movement and gain followers, you must be confident in your strategy and execution. I almost feel like with those five strategies, like you could start a cult. <laughs> <laughs> If you follow those five steps and really do your homework and, and educate and listen and have the appropriate medium and practice and all of those things, I mean, you can really get people behind you. A communication cult. <laughs> yes, a communication cult. I love it. I'll join. But, but, you know, I mean, those five things all came from me not being a great communicator and, and actually having to practice and say, how can I get the counterparty, you know, so that we can still be human to human and see differently and not be okay. Um, and I, I think that's just a great lesson for life in general. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why I love this, I loved this book so much is because it's not, you know, it's, it's a story told in the context of this particular industry, but really it's a book about leadership and communication. And it's, and it's got some really, really important and valuable lessons in there. And I found it so interesting that you have, like your original intended career path was in law because you're really making a case here. You're presenting the fact and weaving emotional storylines throughout and you're really presenting a case and it's very effective. Well, my husband says that I'm really great at presenting cases. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to be as a business owner because basically we are trying to um, present our mission and our vision to potential customers constantly. Mm -hmm. And if we don't believe strongly in our mission and then also have the ability to kind of present it and roll it out in a way that makes sense and appeals to their pain points, then we're not going to be able to sell. So I think that all of that has kind of really come together for you. And, you know, I, I have a mentor from SCORE that I've had since before I opened the studio. And he told me um, before we opened our doors, he said, you have to remember that you are a businesswoman first and an artist second. Mm. And, you know, at first being in your 20s and, you know, having an ego, that was a little bit of a hard pill to swallow because you want to do all the amazing choreography. But when you're growing a business, it's you can't lose sight of, of the business pieces. And they're so important from sales to marketing to the financial pieces, um, vision, strategy. It, it's all macro. And that's, you know, I was too micro at one point in the business and realized that I needed to be more macro for the overall vision. And I think sometimes with artists, that can be really challenging for us, but it can be also be super exciting and rewarding. Yeah, for the most part. <laughs> probably 99.999% of dance studio owners 
start their businesses or purchase their businesses or, or go into this journey because they love teaching and they love dance and they love choreography and they love the performing experience and they love educating, not because they love, you know, QuickBooks and <laughs> marketing and those things. And so we are all as an industry learning, we're learning as we go. And it's so interesting to hear about this journey that you took to learn how to be an effective leader and the tumultuous experience that it was. And one thing that really helped me was leaning into stories of businesses, you know, reading about Amazon, Disney, Uber, WeWork, um, just kind of keeping a pulse, not only just on the dance industry, but on the greater business sphere in general, because our revenue may not look like those businesses, but principals and, you know, they are not a hundred percent successful. They have failures too, but learning from like what works and what doesn't in different structures, different businesses is really enlightening. And I, I would like to read and even like Dunkin' Donuts, I read a book by the Dunkin' Donuts CFO um, that I loved. And it's all about how having a challenge culture can be really healthy. So encouraging employees to question and bring ideas and it's, you know, all of those pieces and nuggets helped me as I was sort of defining this, this new era and new vision for the studio. One of the things that you talk about that really piqued my interest was uh, Girls Geared for Greatness. Um, we have at our studio a leadership program where we teach middle schoolers to be assistants in the classroom. And then once they get into high school, they are given more responsibilities to lead their own classes. But I wanted to take that program and kind of make it into more of a leadership program. And I would love it if you would talk to us a little bit about Girls Geared for Greatness, um, because I'm really inspired by that. Yeah. So Girls Geared for Greatness, a parent came to me right around the time of leaving the competitive dance industry. And she said, I think you would be really good at inspiring girls to be leaders. And I said, now is not the time. Um, But I couldn't like let go of that idea and think that it could turn into something really great. And so as kind of the, you know, Me Too movement revved up, I think around 2017, I was like, what can we do that is an action-oriented response to these conversations that are happening? And that's why we landed on the name Girls Geared for Greatness, because intrinsically, I think the leadership and the power is there. It just has to be cultivated and encouraged and pulled out. So we decided, you know, to move forward. And the first year we had in-person um, quarterly programming at the studio, and it's open to, to dancers as well as anyone And it was great. We had over 200 girls participate. And so then we were like, well, this this is actually bigger than the studio. So we started the 501c3 process, which if you've dealt with the IRS this past year has not been um, an easy journey. But we finally did get that status in May. So it is this has kind of been um, a transformational year for that organization as well. And we ran digital programming over the summer, which was great. And now we're currently just kind of in a a sitting and hold position until we kind of get all of our ducks in a row to really shoot it forward. But the program in itself, you know, we talk about things that we just don't have time to always get to in the studio sphere, which is why we launched it. Things like perseverance, empathy, leadership, time management. Uh, We had an entrepreneur series where we brought in like female entrepreneurs from the community to talk about their businesses that they had created. We do civic exercises where we'll write letters to local community leaders, um, those types of things. And it is, it's just 
it's so needed right now. So this is open to kids that are not necessarily affiliated with your studio. Is there a fee that these kids pay to participate or do you fundraise to implement these programs? So we haven't been able to fundraise yet since we just got that letter in May. <clears throat> so the studio sponsors the website for the organization. And um, at this point, it has been 100% donation-based. So um, female business leaders volunteer. We have facilitators that volunteer to help with the sessions. And the students don't have to pay anything to attend. Wow. That's amazing. Um, is this something that you are planning on expanding and having like other people have their own units or I get you compare it to the Girl Scouts. So are you trying to expand and create more troops? <laughs> yeah. I, so we would love for it to um, expand. And, you know, that momentum was kind of paused just in the chaos of, of nav navigating the pandemic. But I do think that's kind of the vision of the future. And, you know, not, it shouldn't be super strict, but just, hey, this is the program that we have done. You're welcome to take our framework and apply it. Um, but accessibility is really important just in the concept of it. So right in its early days, like I had um, a studio in Australia and one in Maryland that had kind of reached out for our like game plan and structure and I sent it on to them. And so I do see it evolving into something of that nature in the future. And of course, like adaptable to community needs. But I just think like saying, hey, you know, yeah, we're a dance studio. One, we have space, which is great. Um, and two, we have a captive audience, but our captive audience also has friends. Mm -hmm. And just saying, you know, this is supplemental to what we do. And this is something that we want to offer as a gift to the community because it's something that we believe in and runs alongside our mission and our training. That's I love it. I love it so much. But like I said, it, it, the momentum slowed a little. Like, we're going to get revved back up. Understandably. And I'm sure the <laughs> families are probably, you know, very distracted as well right now with, with so many other things. It's true. We had speakers lined up, like, in that March, April, May time frame. They all had to cancel. Right. So we were like, okay, we'll just read the room and, and take a breath, and then we'll get back to it. Um, and, the, you know, we did digital this summer, but the in-person for that type of programming is, is where you really get a meaningful connection. So we're excited to eventually get back to that. Yeah, I'm excited to hear more about that later. So you are a very busy lady. You've got, <laughs> you've got your studios. You have two locations. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Uh, you run Girls Geared for Greatness. Are you still doing, or I guess, you know, pre-COVID, you do pretty local productions and theater. Is that something that's still a part of your life as well? Uh, it was until everything sure. kind of went away. Um, but it's been a blessing to kind of have that space because I'm sure as both of you know, this has just required just a crazy amount of extra energy yes. to, to kind of navigate. So I've, I, haven't been, um, I haven't been bored that's good. <laughs> I don't think anybody, if you're a small business owner right now, I don't think bored is on your list of adjectives that you've no, done in the last five all. months. Not at all. We've all worked harder since March than we have worked in a long, long time. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. And learned so many new skills that we can add to our toolbox and, you know, trying to look at it. I, I loved your epilogue about your handling of the, of, of transitioning your studio into an online format and how you had to, you know, per, 
take it in the frame of mind of this is an opportunity for growth. This is, you know, we have to look at the positives of this. And, and that's kind of how we as a community and DSO Connect have also been, been trying to perceive this whole, this whole time. <laughs> And that was written in early April. So oh I God. definitely, I thought that, um, you know, I think we all thought like, let's do this for March. Let's do this for April. And then the summer will be normal. Mm -hmm. And then we're like, okay, the summer is going to be weird. But by the time the season starts, everything will be more normal. And now like, I've just, I'm not putting an end date on anything. I'm just like, all right, I'm, I'm riding the roller coaster. Um, just like whatever chapter that is in the book. But um <laughs> It has been, it has been taxing, but I'm constantly impressed with our industry because I do think the performing arts are so important. And I just, I see the passion in dance studios and their unwillingness to just wave the white flag and say, okay, we're done. Dance studios are fighting and that's been really inspiring to watch. Yeah, I'm just, I, I say this all the time. I'm just really proud of dance studio owners. Yeah. They are getting scrap. They have been scrappy since March 13th and clawing and scratching and gasping to survive. And I think that um, it's just very impressive to watch. I had so many of my families at my studio thank me for everything that we did during the during the shutdown to to keep dance classes going for their kids and have them say things like you provided so much more content and quality and value of program than any of my kids other activities did and and thank you for being so on the game and thank you for being so committed and to me it was like well yeah duh i kind of I, I didn't see any other option mm -hmm. but so many other industries and businesses just kind of you know shut down and Instead, we'll see you later. <laughs> I know it was it's, it was really strange, and, and you know we are businesses that are based on gatherings. Like we have to have this massive amount of square footage. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like Robin was saying. Like we have been clawing our way to try to just make it to the other side, and there's there's so much to be um, said for that, just on a character level. And I I think that that is what a perfect example of what dance instills in us adaptability resilience you know it's when things go wrong in a performance and you roll with it and you make it right like that's what we've been applying every single day since march and that hasn't been happening in every industry yeah and and just the experience of learning how to take one piece one one choreographed number and apply it to so many different performing scenarios and that's what you do in your intensive training program right you have these additional performing opportunities for your dancers and it's it's a really unique experience every time and the dancers are taught how to be adaptable so can you talk a little bit about of course pre-covid what those right. experiences were like and how you sought them out yeah so you know when we decided i said the number one thing that i have to do to make sure people will buy into this program is give them a chance to perform um so i started emailing right off the bat and, you know, we will perform anywhere. It's ranged from festivals to parades to the veterans hospital to kids museums, anywhere that says like, yeah, we need performers. Like we go and perform and we don't have to pay for those performances, which is great. And it also, it affirms that we're a centerpiece of our community. So it's great for branding as well. 
And the children love it. And it's taught them so much because they're not always going to have a perfect stage. Their music isn't always going to be perfect. There's not always going to be bells and whistles. But the most important thing is that they are getting to practice their passion and their performing arts and recognizing that that joy transcends kind of the perfect performance environment. You know, when we were at the Veterans Hospital, I think I write about this in the book, but it was the children were so alarmed you know, amputees, people in wheelchairs, kind of giving them a greater understanding of just human condition and how performing for them, that may be the only performance they see in a month, but for their level of joy and enthusiasm and to realize that performing, you know, while it's great to focus on personal growth and goals, that you can also bring so much joy um, to others through it. And to see them kind of step outside of that ego piece of it is really, really rewarding. And you see them grow as dancers and as humans. Yeah. yeah. And I think that experience is probably so much more valuable to their growth than being on a stage that has an incredible production value and they get a trophy at the end, but it's just like every other stage they've been on. Right. And, you know, and they have their annual benefit show, which is like a professional theater show produced just for them that they have ownership of. And then they, we have our year end performances where they also get kind of that performance piece. But it's all of these things in between, you know, and some of them are on stages and some of them are not. But them, you know, having the confidence to say, I can show up under any circumstance and do my routine, whether it's on like a tile floor in a nursing home or a built up outdoor festival stage, those are great life lessons because every day may look a little different, but if you have confidence in your skills, you can approach it and you can attack it. Yeah. I think also it takes, when, when, you, when you have your kids doing community performances, like for example, the Veterans Hospital, it almost makes the competition scene look very me-centered. It's like when we go to competition, it's about me. It's about what am I... Am, am I going to win? What are my scores? Where's my trophy? Where's my glitter? Where's my me, me, me? And when you perform for the community, it's a complete reversal. And, and the lesson is no longer about, or the focus is no longer about what's in it for me. It's more about what am I giving to make someone else happy. And that's so important, right? And it also just gives perspective and gratitude and these character attributes that, that we really want to instill in our students. And you know, thinking about kind of how we're moving forward, it's, this is a really important time to make these types of changes. You know, I've heard so many people or I've seen it like posted on social media where, you know, they're saying, oh, I really hope competitions are back so that I can save my business and we can get back to competitions. But it's like, you can save your business without competitions and in fact, bring even more value to your programming. So I hope that that inner conflict of thinking that competitions are that necessary for operations and success, um, I hope that's not weighing on people and that they realize that they can kind of push through. Thank you so much for listening to the GSO Connect podcast. Tune in next week for the second part of our conversation with Chasta Hamilton. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.